Hi, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles with you, open to Hebrews six. We're gonna be there and then move to Genesis chapter fifteen. But for now, Hebrews six. If you're new to navigating the Bible, it's about ninety-eight percent of the way through, not including maps and glossary. As Lucas said, my name is Sawyer, and I recently completed my residency at Bayview Glen, kind of like an internship. And now life has gone back to normal for me, whatever、uh, that is. I found that. The the lockdown, the quarantine, with all the COVID stuff, each month has kind of had a different theme. And my last month has been just exhausting. I've just been pooped all the time from nothing, from anything, from everything. I wake up and I feel just as tired as I went back to bed. So I seek solace and you know checking the internet, but that's no help either. It's just a cacophony of catastrophe. Not only like the content, but how everyone's speaking with each other. It's just angry. It's bitter. It's vitriol. Um, so it's just been a couple months of Netflix and pizza for me on my end. I haven't been super productive during all this. Also, social media is annoying for that. Everyone's planting gardens, reading books, and baking. That hasn't happened for me. I've learned no instrument. I have not gotten a six pack yet.、Uh, it's just been <laughs> sabbathing hard.、I've、been setting a record for the amount of months I've been doing this. And、uh, oddly enough, kind of my spiritual life, I found it's it's been parallel with. Just my emotional life in general, not leading, not lagging. Some days I feel like cracking open the Word, and some mornings I just kind of want to sit and listen to、um, worship music. I haven't been getting up earlier. I'm not jogging at 4 a.m. reading my utmost for His highest. <laughs>、uh, just this this apathy and boredom is is weighing on me, and I'm sure I'm sure you feel the same. So, what does the Bible say about this? Hebrews chapter six. The author is encouraging the church to press on in maturity and learning and growing about Christ, not to coast, not to cruise, not to go lukewarm or fall away from the faith. And and I'll grant that they were probably going through things much harder than me. But don't you dare take away my suffering of Netflix and pizza. <laughs> but if you look at verse eleven and twelve, we get the the feel for this. And we desire each one of you, that's us, to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you might not be sluggish, ouch, <laughs> but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So, what's the secret to perseverance? Looking back, let's look at the people. This is what the author says. Look at the the faithful saints who came before you. So, let's keep going to verse thirteen. I'm gonna skip a few, but I'll let you know when. Thirteen, for when God made a promise to Abraham. Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, "Surely I will bless you, and multiply you." And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Okay, now let's skip to verse six,、uh, seventeen. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. Skip one more verse to verse nineteen. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So, what's the secret? You need an anchor.、I、said, look to Abraham. He was anchored by God's promises. What is an anchor? An anchor is something that holds you in place, so you're not moved or drifted from your original position. Right? It makes you. Not subject to the the blowing of the wind, the currents, and the pushing of the waves. The anchor actually sits beneath the waves to hold you in place. So I would ask you this: What is your anchor? We need something impervious to 
geopolitical conflicts to the waxing and waning of the economy to the changes of public opinion? Is your anchor your looks, your money, your talent, your social circle? We see that Abraham's promise, verse 17, his anchor was the oath that God made to him. Verse 17 says that. This promise anchors us with a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So the author is weaving together two things, the promise that God made to Abraham and the work of Christ. And this provides us an anchor today. Now for myself growing up in a mostly small, rural, Protestant, evangelical, white church setting, Abraham didn't get quite as much time on the flannel graph compared to Joseph, Moses, or Noah. He doesn't have a DreamWorks movie. I personally don't tend to focus on the stories of Abraham much when I think about Christianity or when I'm looking for resources for me to reflect on in my daily walk with Christ. I, I tend, unfortunately, tend to focus on the New Testament. The Old Testament's fine, but that's for pastors to work with. That's for getting verses for mugs or Instagram captions. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? But for me, I tend to go with the New Testament. And that's really unfortunate because the writers of the Bible didn't see the scriptures this way. And Jesus didn't understand himself this way either. He wasn't something unique and distinct from this, but he was the completion of it. So a mature and growing Christian understanding will seek to see the roots of the foundation of our faith, even if it's heavier lifting in some areas. Let me, let me just try and convince you of this very, very quickly that you can't get around this. In the very first verse, I'll turn here, you don't have to. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the New Testament, this is how the author introduces Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The very first verse of the New Testament, the author says, hey, this is Jesus, and he places him within the lineage of Abraham and David. This is a reference to two of the most foundational promises within the Old Testament. There's the promise of Abraham that one of his descendants will bring out a blessing to all the nations, and to David, one of his descendants will usher in the eternal kingdom. So Matthew says Jesus is the one who will usher in the eternal kingdom and bring a blessing to the world. That's wild. So we see how much our understanding of Jesus and the promises of the Old Testament overlap. This is what we're going to be diving into today, specifically the first half of the first sentence of the first verse in the Bible, the life of Abraham. And as we do this, there's, there's one question that I want you to be thinking about this morning as we go through the passages. Are God's blessings conditional or unconditional? And where you land on this is going to have a profound influence on how you live out your Christian life. If you think that God's blessings are conditional, you're always going to be working to keep up your end of the bargain. And you're either going to be miserable because you can't do it, and, and who can blame you, or you're going to be arrogant because you wrongfully think that you can, if you think they're conditional. If you think they're unconditional, there's also a different type of risk just in taking perhaps the grace for granted and thinking, I can do whatever I want now because I've got the get out of jail free card. And scripture also warns against this. We see Romans 6.1, it asks this question, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. So there's also uh, a risk in an un, uh, perhaps like an unqualified understanding of just unconditional grace. So there's a tension here that we're going to try and address 
as we look in the promises of blessings that God made to Abraham. So let's get to it. Let's look at this actual covenant, this promise that was made. Genesis 15, uh, it's about eight pages deep in the Bible, if this is your first time digging through it as well, right at the very, very start. So I'm going I'm to summarize what's happened so far with the life of Abraham. God has come to Abraham and he's given him some commands. He says, I want you to get up and go. Leave the land where you are because I want to do something great through you. I want to make a nation through you that will be a blessing to the world. And to do this, right, first Abraham needs a son, doesn't have a son. You need a plot of land to do this, and then you need the nation to come through it, right? Abraham was pretty old at this time when they actually had the son, Abraham and Sarah. They were both in their 90s. So Abraham's kind of skeptical. God tells him to get up and go and leave everything. And what does Abraham say specifically in verse 8? O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? You're saying you're going to provide all these things for me, but there's kind of a cost of me leaving. What assurance do I have? Abraham kind of sounds like us, right? He wants a little bit of proof. So God makes a covenant with him. And Lucas introduced this concept of covenant last week. And covenants may sound a bit archaic to us today. You know, why don't I use a more contemporary term? Well, our modern world really doesn't have a concept for this. Covenants are a blend of law and love that are really hard for us to conceptualize today because we only understand law and love as the absence of the other. They are covenants, uh, they are contracts, but covenants are so much more as well. And as we said last week, covenants have five components. First, there is the mediator, that's the middleman. There's the blessings, there's the conditions, and then there is the internal sign of the covenant and the external sign of the covenant. So God commands Abraham to take certain animals and to cut them in half and to lay them out. So this is raw meat sliced up and spread out. This is the first reference to sushi in scripture. God be praised. (laughs) He tells him to lay it out. And to this, to us, this seems strange, but Abraham knew exactly what was happening here. This is a covenant ratification ceremony. God is going to make a covenant with him. So this is specifically referred to as a blood covenant. And what this type of covenant shows, you can also see another example of this in Jeremiah 34, is you act out what is going to happen if you should break your side of the deal. So you're showing, may I be as one of these animals if I fail to live up to my end of the bargain. So the animals are cut out. And this is way more effective than signing a piece of paper, right? You got some skin in the game. You have have all of your skin in the game. And blood covenants were irrevocable, they were permanent, they were unconditional. So the animals would be sliced up. And usually when there were two people, if there was one who was clearly like the lesser in terms of the the power dynamic, this person would be the one who would walk down the row, you know, between the aisles of the sashimi, right? This person would walk through and this is how they would take the responsibility upon themselves. So Abraham prepared the ceremony and he waited for God to show up. This is where things get really, really interesting. So now in verse, uh, for me, this starts in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Most translations say a smoking pot and a torch. But the words for this, they, they just mean smoke and blaze. These are the same words that are described 
of God when he comes onto Mount Sinai and also the, the pillar of fire and the cloud that lead the Israelites through the desert. So really this means this ball of smoke and you could imagine flashes of lightning and fire just cracking inside. So this appears and this is, this is where things get a little bit interesting. I'll close this. It begins, God begins to move down the row of the animals, slowly but surely. And this is unorthodox because remember, as I said before, usually the lesser of the two, they would do this to bring upon the responsibility for themselves. But God, by doing this, he is bringing upon himself Abraham's responsibility. So not only is God responsible for his side of the bargain, but he's also responsible to pay Abraham's price if he should fail to honor his side of the covenant. Do you you see what's happening here? God isn't going to let Abraham's sinfulness get in the way of the love and blessings that God has for him. It's it's important not to miss this. This is not do-it-yourself Christianity. This is not God helps those who help themselves. This isn't you need to sow a big seed if you want to receive a big harvest. Not at all. How can we trust that God will be for us in a world that's wild, in a future that's crazy? How do I know that God isn't going to give up on me when I eventually let him down or when he finds out about the real Sawyer? We have this promise and his commitment to be for us what we can't be for ourselves. So let's recap. What have we seen so far? We have a covenant taking place, and Abraham, the mediator, is commanded to leave everything because God wants to make a people for himself, which will include giving Abraham a son and a plot of land. These are the blessings. The condition of the covenant, this is spelled out more in Genesis 18, 19, a couple chapters later, is that Uh, Abraham and his people should pursue righteousness and justice. Those are the conditions. The internal sign of the covenant is uh, a life of faith. And God commanded as an external sign of the covenant that Abraham and his people should be circumcised. Noah got a rainbow. (laughs) And Abraham, whoo, okay. Now, Abraham also got an anchor. And he's going to need that anchor in a few years. Turn with me now just a few pages to Genesis 22. Abraham's life is about to get turned upside down. His bell is about to get rung. And there's there's none of us watching this here today whose lives can't be turned upside down in an instant. All it takes is one phone call for everything to change. So let's see how Abraham handles this. Genesis 22. So during the time that's passed between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, Abraham and Sarah received their son Isaac, right? This is the promise of their future. This is part of the blessings that God had also given to them. And in chapter 22, God says to Abraham, I want you to give your son Isaac back. This is calling Abraham to let go of his future, of his family, of his hope for the furtherance of his name seems kind of confusing. And when I, when I look at this portion of scripture, I find it challenging. I'm trying to wrestle with it, but here's what I do know. God is not calling upon Isaac 
as a, like a child sacrifice. The Old Testament is extremely clear. God is anti-human sacrifice. It says in chapter 22 that God was doing this as a test. So at least I can, I can take some comfort in that. And it says that Abraham took his son, took a few servants, and they set out for the mountain where God called for this sacrifice to take place. It takes them a few days when they get there. Abraham and Isaac, they start to go up the mountain. They climb up and they start to prepare an altar and they start to put wood on it. And it says that Isaac, as he's putting the wood on the altar, he says, hey, dad, I'm paraphrasing, where's the sacrifice? As he's laying the wood on, and Abraham says, God will provide. Then it says that Isaac was tied up. He was laid on top of the wood. Abraham has the blade. And when his hand is in the air, God commands him to stop. God sees Abraham's radical obedience and his absolute trust. And he provides a sacrifice in Isaac's place. In this case, there was a, there was a ram in a nearby bush. So here we see three things. One, we see a radical obedience and an absolute trust on Abraham's part in God's promises. His legacy, his dream, his family, his future, all of this was threatened and he did not break. This is a man with an anchor. What is your anchor? Two, God still provides on behalf of Abraham and fulfills his covenantal obligations of giving Abraham a son through whom all the world will be blessed. And thirdly, this is where we get the significance for us. We see a foreshadowing in this of Christ who will make the ultimate sacrifice in our place. Just as God provided the sacrifice in the place of Isaac, so too has he provided the sacrifice in the place of us. Driscoll and Brashears, in their book Doctrine, they note several similarities and parallels between Jesus and Isaac. Jesus and Isaac were both sons of a promise given many years before them. They were also born to women through miracles. Sarah was around 90 when she gave birth to Isaac. Jesus and Isaac were also firstborn sons. Isaac carried the wood to his own sacrifice. Jesus carried the wooden cross to his own crucifixion. Isaac and Jesus both willingly laid down their lives to fathers who felt the agony of killing an innocent son. Isaac was saved from his death, and Jesus was brought back from his death. All of the Old Testament actually is pointing to the Messiah who will come and pay the price in our place. One of the, the most beautiful and explicit references to this as well is Isaiah 53. It's going to sound familiar once I start reading it. I'm just going to read a few verses. I'm going to start in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8 goes on to say that he was cut off from the land of the living. That word cut. Is that familiar? Do you see how this is coming full circle now? Many times when I'm talking with people about Christianity, and I also see this in a lot of books, 
they ask, they ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God have snapped his fingers, just wiped the slate clean? Isn't God all loving? Isn't he all powerful? Isn't he all knowing? Couldn't he have figured out a way to do this? Why did Jesus have to die? Because we entered a covenant and God took our deal upon himself. By walking down the aisle, God said, if you should fail to pursue righteousness and justice, may I be cut off and die. May I become a curse. Galatians 3.13 makes this extremely explicit. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you get this? God loves you so much, he won't let you screw up the love that he has in store for you. So once again, are God's blessings conditional or unconditional? The answer is yes. On the cross, Christ fulfilled the conditions of the law so that God can love you unconditionally. With his life, he fulfilled the terms of the covenant, and with his death, he fulfilled the curse of the covenant. Now you understand why Jesus says he did not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. This leaves the blessing for you, for me, for anyone who wants it. And until you really grasp covenant theology and the gospel, you either feel a sense of condemnation and guilt because you aren't living up to God's commands for the Christian life, or you say, meh, God loves me, and you don't take seriously this call for how God wants us to live our lives, right? First Peter, he, he echoes this command from Leviticus. It says, be holy as I am holy. But before our life in Christ, we had an impossible calling. But now we have an unfailing God. We resist sin, but we don't fall into despair when we fail. And when you understand the price paid for your life and love, we see the law as conditions of the covenant that we ought to take seriously. Jesus died to fulfill this. But when I fail, I know that there are no condemnations for those who are in Christ Jesus. So my obedience is a way of honoring God, but I'm not trying to earn his favor. Like Abraham, this builds in us a radical obedience and an absolute trust. So let's bring this full circle. Let's put this in Hebrews 6 language. God is showing in the covenant that our anchor cannot be ourselves. Our anchor is the promise of his blessing, not to be healthy and wealthy, not to be cool or have an above, uh, an above average lifestyle, but his promises of his love, his provision, his sufficiency, his sovereignty, and his victory. And these are the blessings. Are these conditional or unconditional? Yes. The conditions are met at the highest price so that unconditional love can be met at the most personal level. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the, the price that, that you paid for us and that you did for me what, what I could not do for myself. Uh, forgive me when, when I fail to remember this and when I still try either to, to do this my own way or, or to not follow the, the calling that, that you've made for me and that you've prepared for me. Would you help us more to, to walk in this truth? Would you help me to trust more? Would you help me to, uh, to obey? Would my anchor be your promises? In your name, amen.